Welcome to the Weird Eye Podcast. We are your hosts, Agent Spotaro and Bogdan Andrusak. And in this episode, we're going to talk about AI and cooking. Adrian, I want to talk today about the question that was keeping people occupied since beginning of time. And this important question is, what's for dinner? <laughs> and we are already uh, living in time when AI can help us cook our dinner and feed us. For me, when researching this, it was very interesting because I was I didn't thought about this question before and I, I was very interested to learn how you can represent food as as data in order for algorithm to learn. So let's start with first a case study. It's very often mentioned IBM and the US food company McCormick. They cooperated together to make a new taste, a new flavors for food. And they came up with such flavor as Tuscan chicken, Bourbon pork tenderloin, and New Orleans sausage. Sounds tasty, I hope. I, I checked in Europe, we cannot get those products. So yeah, if listeners in the US can go to supermarket, try that food and tell us, it would be great. But yes, that's one of the first big projects where AI was used to create new flavors. Sadly, there is no complete paper on it because it's a commercial project. So most of information is not available. But what I got from the, the information that is available is that McCormick company, they, they are in food production are for a long time and they documented food and spices specifically as chemical compounds because the chemicals that are in food is responsible for what we taste. So they wrote it. So now you can imagine what happens when you can take a food and write it as a formula. Now we have structured data and that's where the, all the deep learning can come in. Uh, I think I was thinking maybe they could use some like embeddings because you know which spices occur together, which foods go together, and then then you can do stuff like clustering and uh, find maybe combinations that were never used before. However, we don't necessarily need a formula to describe the food to find pairings of food, so. A paper which I can find where it's accessible to the public is a paper called Kitchenette, predicting and recommending food ingredients pairing using CME's neural networks. And the basic idea is that they had a data set with pairings of things which work together, whether food or drink. So for example, gin goes very well with tonic and pepper goes also well with salt. And it also has data about pairs which don't, didn't work well. So vanilla and onion don't work well. And what they did is they trained a neural network, a CME's neural network, where they would try to create an embedding of these pairs. And they would have a triplet loss where words which go well together and similar, they get closer. And pairs which are dissimilar, so are like a negative pair where it's not, not good combination, they will go further apart. 
And after training this neural network, they uh, even though they have no understanding of like cooking, just with the text itself, they already found pairs, new combination of pairs, which either you can find in, in their recipe, recipe books. And based with their algorithm, they found new combinations, which you could find in books such where they, you find pairing of wines and food types. So what kind of wine goes well with what food and what, yeah, and what food goes well with what wine. With this new network, you already have, already get very something close. And I could imagine if you also have the physical properties or taste properties of the food itself, chemical formulation, then I guess you can get even better results than just by the text itself. And also when it comes to food, you can have same ingredient, but you can change that ingredient in different ways and then it will be completely different type of food. So that's what, that's what was addressed by studies done by Samsung. Uh, they made the multi-model embedding problem to capture the essence of food. So they would do it based on recipes and they would also t use photo analysis for a picture. And uh, so they encoded uh, ingredients that are in food, uh, which occur together, so like pairings. But then they also took to consideration the preparation steps, like should it be cut it or chopped, boiled or baked, and then combined it together. And so what, what, what it possible was uh, you, you can have a picture of a dish, and then from a dish, you can get the ingredients and the required preparation process. So after they, they made this model, a very cool, cool evaluation that they show in their paper is when they take a recipe and then they change the ingredient and see how the recipe adopts to it. So for example, they, you have a beef roast. And then you'd say, like, let's replace beef with chicken roast. And it will generate the recipe uh, based what would you have to do if instead of beef you had a chicken. So not just like replacing, but also like, you know, adjusting temperature because like you, you cook ch ch chicken and beef in different temperature. So... As that's very interesting. And the, the study for Samsung, I think it was done not just, you know, just, just to capture the essence of food. It's made for a purpose as Samsung is also developing a robot arms for kitchens that are uh, intended to help you cook. They have like cameras, they can perform all the tasks around the kitchen. And I think this study of food is aimed to make that the arm, these robot arms are useful so they can visually recognize food and recognize what task they need to do without performing, like without users saying exactly what they need to do. In case you're curious to see how the robot looks like, we added a link in the reference notes so you can see it, how it looks. Yeah. And if you are too lazy to check, it looks exactly like robot arm. The things that comes to your mind when you think robot arm. <laughs> <laughs> it's a human arm, like human arm, but robot. <laughs> so, 
it's it's quite so for me it's uh, it's very interesting but that's uh, you know do you want to have a robot in your kitchen that is wielding a knife <laughs> <laughs> as long as it's attached on the wall and like if if you see the image you see the robot cannot really it's just moving around the kitchen cooking area and not really out of the kitchen yes but you still will go next to that robot where it's like, you know, handling the knife and other sharp objects. Yeah, it's like, oh, you want to pick up the your your cooked meal? <laughs> Guess what? You'll come with the knife the, the, when you least expect it. <laughs> you know, uh, it has 90, 99% of accuracy, but 1% it recognizes your fingers as sausages. And uh, <laughs> here they, off they go. <laughs> but I'm quite optimistic with that technology. I think it will be quite seamless, and I don't know. Uh, it's hard to say if they will like be sp uh, very uh, used in like homes. I think it more like you can imagine like restaurants uh, or like industry business uh, business sector using it but not like home because you would probably have to like design your kitchen around that hand so it's like you know had enough reach and space to perform all of that functionality i agree with re regarding specifically for the samsung robot it's quite hard to every average joe to have such robot in their house it's not something which everybody will have in their houses they're already robotic application when it comes to building, let's say, robot kitchens. So I know there's this American company where they sell pizzas, but most of the process is already automated. So when it comes to like spreading the sauce and putting the ingredients, the toppings, it's purely automated. And I can see, I could see something like this either like in a fancy restaurant <laughs> But I think the big industry shift which will happen first is building robotic AI-assisted ghost kitchens. So I think most of us during the pandemic have at least ordered once food from one of those services like Uber Eats or here in Miam in Austria. So... I would assume that this business is not going to disappear. It will thrive, I would think, in the future. So building ghost kitchens and having these robotics helping you. Maybe you don't need such advanced robotics to, that you can simplify it a bit to reduce the, the production cost of building such a system. And I definitely see the future in that, that regard. Yeah, because I think it's like if you build a system around uh, making like fixed set of products food uh, you can make it much more simple because like in theory robot arm can cook whatever the human can cook without any limitations but because for example in japan they have uh, a vending machine that make pizza which they, they only make pizza but it's a vending machine and so also to japan they have already robotics which either prepare the the, the rice for the nigiri or they have they already make sushi rolls for you so yeah i think soon quite soon the dinner will be cooked by robot mates as you may notice when you always order food maybe it's not the healthiest food which you order so one thing about cooking is also nutrition 
and AI can also help you also there. We talked about using computer vision with the robot, what you previously talked about. We also talked about text, how we can use the text to find similarity in, in like combinations which work in food. And we can use AI using, for example, vision to detect nutrition. More specifically, a paper by Google called Nutrition 5K Towards Automatic Nutritional Understanding of Generic Food built a neural network where given several images from different angles of a food on plate, so cooked dish, predict the calories, the protein, the nutritional value of that food. And what they did, they trained a fast, a faster recurrent CNN, which is basically you stack a lot of images together, pass it through some convolutional networks, and then in the end, it would have some fewer linear layers where it would then predict the calories, the, how heavy the food is, so the mass of the, the ingredient in the dish, the fat, calorie, carbohydrates, and protein. So regarding like predicting how heavy the food is, so let's say you have some food, fish on it, so how heavy would the fish based on the image, they got like an error of around 38 grams. But if you use also the depth, so the volume of the image itself, then you can even get better results. So the error will be even smaller. When it comes to predicting the nutritional value, in average, it's quite small, the error. So like the error, like giving the image, the error of predicting the protein is just three grams. So plus three grams, minus three grams. But when it comes to food, we always subestimate the carbohydrates in our food and the, or the calories. It's like, ah, it just has 100 calories. Well, also the eye also subestimates with an average error of 41. And I think it's like the data set that they produced is uh, free. Yes. So they recorded their own data set. It's like small robot, again, robots, <laughs> where they made 360 photos of the food and yet they published the data set. Yes. The uh, interesting in papers, they, you can f see the process, how they make it. It's really cool. They have like the box with cameras, they put a dish and they have, don't, is they, so they also in, it, like uh, recorded temperature, if I'm correct. Yeah, that, that's the, the depth, basically. Yeah, the yeah. Depth, so yeah. yeah, you have a bunch of different information. So if you're looking for ideas to work in a sector of AI, maybe you can check their data set. It's super new. It was like beginning of March. So again, fresh out of a meal, those fresh papers. There are a lot of new methods which are, let's say, better than, let's say, faster recurrency and ends there. And you, yeah, like now I've seen papers with transformers replacing convolutional networks. So if you're a researcher and you want low hanging fruit, take this data set, put some transformers, get state of the art results and done. <laughs> Call it a day. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> with the topic of nutrition, there's always topic of diets and uh, researchers Researchers from Weizmann Institute of Science from Israel, they made very interesting research on diet where they were measuring glucose levels of people after they ate food, any food, and they managed to acquire a lot of volunteers to, to log the food. So 
So people would eat something and they would make like a, a blood test, which everybody can do at home. It's a simple thing you can get from apothecary. And uh, yeah, so a lot of people recorded their uh, glucose levels, reactions to different foods. And what they found was very interesting, showing that different people have different glucose increase to same, uh, to same food. For example, two people can eat ice cream, which is considered unhealthy, very sugary uh, food, and some people would have high uh, glucose spike, and for some the amount of glucose wouldn't be so big. And this is very, um, uh, very important for dieting, and especially when talking about people with diabetes or pre-diabetes because that's where the glucose levels is like the most important thing and uh, and usually dietitians would always recommend same set of foods for people and uh, their study showed that the, those recommended foods can make a spike for some people based so some people can have a glucose spike even when they eat food recommended by dietitians so the, what, the, what they say in their uh, research is that there is no one diet that would work for everybody as different people just react to different uh, food differently uh, due to uh, the fact that people have different uh, bacteria environments in their intestines and that's a very big factor on how people digest food. And so what? So they they even so they, the the research continues. So what I saw that they can like they can provide a diet for you based on your glucose level. So you have to you know measure your glucose levels after taking some foods, and then from their data and from their models, they can they can suggest some foods for you. I think that's a very interesting part where when you combine health with biometric data, so with the latest developments of these smart devices like these Fitbits where you can track heart rate and movement and sleep, you can all, there's also some other wearables like actual glucose devices, like small patches where they continuously measure your glucose level. And if you can combine that data, what, when you like basically these apps where you have where you can write what you ate, where and to track your calories and what exactly you you ate, and by self-validating it with yourself, you can do some kind of biohacking. You can maybe find that you have a slight intolerance with certain foods. Maybe you can measure inflammation of your body, like the CRP value, which is I think yeah, and other things. So you can optimize your diet. Yes, exactly. And like it's now research shows that so many health issues are coming just from dieting and you can improve your health by eating uh, healthy. But that's very hard question. What is healthy? And I think that a lot of problem is coming here because I would say it's like there's a lot of money involved in it because people are pushing their diets. You know, there's a lot of vegan products. So there's 
you know, other stuff that very heavily monetized influencers, you know, they try to get as many attention. So they would throw some diets and as just, you know, common person, it's really hard to get this information. But I, I, again, I will repeat myself. I think with biohacking, we can best understand ourselves. So with using continuous data from different measurements, what we previously talked and by just logging your food. Anyway, bodybuilders generally log their food on these apps. So if you just have some wearables and you're combining with that, you can already see how you're reacting to certain food. Yeah, you may have some statistics which don't apply for the general population, but you have some statistics which apply to you at least, some correlations at least to your regard. And that's actionable information, at least for you, improving your own diet and overall well-being. And I think it's like it's becoming more and more popular, like people logging what they're eating, eating more cautiously. And because, as you mentioned, there's new variable technologies that make like glucose tests without problems. You don't need to draw blood. You just attach a patch and uh, you draw blood. But OK, that's <laughs> it's a very tight. You don't even feel it. Yeah. Yes. I, I mean, it's. It's not like putting a syringe in your vein and going to lab and making it. It's, yeah. it's still like, it's still not. A, but I say in medical field, the, uh, the research for blood test without doing drawing blood is like super big. It's a, a holy grail in medical business. So big that someone from Silicon Valley went to prison for fraud for that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and um, imagine combining the previous, this Nutrition 5K, with the possibility to track your food. You don't need to think how many calories in uh, your food you eat. You just, you know, take a snapshot of your food. It automatically locks. It makes it without a hassle. Everybody benefits from it automatic reporting combined with glucose and you have a automatic ai nutrition plan for everyone <laughs> and then then if a lot of people that do it i imagine like how big data sets we can build and analyze but then there's like you know again ethical questions but because like sharing health data but it's not for us to decide and Mm. Closing words. Uh, there's one, one other topic that I wanted to address. It's a one article, very interesting. It was performed in some in one university of Switzerland. They showed how uh, your eating habits are influenced by your social connections. So they well, took the logs of all food that students purchased in a cafeteria because, as I understood, they paid like with the student card, so it's everything was tracked. And they found out that people that didn't have healthy habits, when they become friends with somebody who has healthy habits, they tend to start eating healthy. Okay, but it, I'm. I don't, I never, you read it, but I'm just thinking correlation versus causation. So yeah, that makes sense. But like when I was still a student and went to the cafeteria, there were not so many healthy options. I would say all the options were not really healthy. 
But and if you had friends who eat healthy, that would mean that you would go to places far away from the cafeterias just stay with them, right? It's not like the cafeteria had healthy options. Or I don't know, I'm just maybe. I mean, there was like quite unhealthy options like just taking coffee and uh, chocolate or ah, okay. chips uh, I see, I see. so like let's say healthy in that is just you know taking a dish and a salad for example yeah. and uh, having like more like habitual uh, use so that's yeah that's one of research so it's more like was researching uh, like how Habit, uh, how eating habits and social interactions coincide with each other. So you're telling me that Facebook knows how I eat already? <laughs> Everybody knows how you eat. <laughs> <laughs> if, you, if you have questions, you can reach us at LinkedIn or Twitter. The links are in the description and we are gladly to answer your questions. We wish you a great day and till next time.